we turn to Psalm 82. A brief psalm that we read in connection with Lord's Day 31. Lord's Day 31 sets forth the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And we have here in Psalm 82 a reference to God in the congregation and him judging. We hear the inspired word of God in Psalm 82. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. You read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated on the basis of that text and others to which we'll make reference, we have the teaching of Lord's Day 31. Question and answers 82 through 85. Page 18 in the back of our Psalters, we have Lord's Day 31, question 83. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline or excommunication out of the Christian church. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and shut against unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the Holy Gospel? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, it is declared and publicly testified to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. And on the contrary, when it is declared and testified to all unbelievers and such as do not sincerely repent, that they stand exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation so long as they are unconverted, according to which testimony of the gospel God will judge them both in this and in the life to come. How is the kingdom of heaven shut and open by Christian discipline? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith and will not, after having been often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life, are complained of to the church or to those who are up there unto appointed by the church. And if they despise their admonition, are by them forbidden the use of the sacraments, whereby they are excluded from the Christian church and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. And when they promise and show real amendment, are again received as members of Christ and his church. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, God has ordained the means of grace for our spiritual growth and strength. Those means are identical with the marks of the church. The preaching of the gospel, the administration of sacraments, and Christian discipline constitute the means by which God feeds and nourishes and preserves his church. Two of those marks, the preaching and discipline, 
are also identified as the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Psalm 82 is a psalm that was written against the wicked judges who ruled Israel. This psalm has particular application to the situation at hand this evening. They were not judging righteously. And as a result, they faced then the judgment of Jehovah God. God had placed them in a position in the church. And they were not conducting themselves in a manner that was upright and righteous. Now notice the designation that God gives to these judges. He calls them gods. The earthly judges in the Old Testament were types of the elders in the New Testament. And God calls these men to rule impartially on behalf of him and for his glory. The keys must be evident, but also the keys must be exercised in a godly manner. And Jehovah God, who is the God of the congregation, makes use of these men whom he calls gods, whom he has appointed within the congregation in order that they judge righteously. We look at that, the keys of the kingdom, noting the idea of the keys, the preaching, and discipline. Jesus Christ calls men to function as his representatives within the congregation. The Old Testament includes a number of references to judges appointed by God and placed in the congregation. During the time of the law, we have that in Exodus 21, verse 6, Exodus 22, verse 8. And the word in the Old Testament for judge is literally Elohim, God's. And that's what we find here in Psalm 82. He judgeth among the gods, verse 1. And then again in verse 6, I have said, ye are gods. Now God gives this designation to the leaders in the church because of the position they occupy as his representatives. They're not God. Notice it's in the lower case. It's not to be placed in uppercase as though we are compared in any way to Jehovah. But the idea being that they are God's servants. But they represent God and even have God's own name because of the position that they occupy as his representatives. They're ruling on his behalf within the church. And as such, then, they're called to conduct themselves in a manner that gives him glory and honor. And his rule must be acknowledged and respected by them. Now, Christ gives to these judges keys. And that's the idea of the keys of the kingdom. The church exercises these keys, especially through elders, whom God has appointed as his representatives within the church. Now we know, even you children know, keys are for doors that have locks. And with a key, you open a locked door or you lock a door so that that door remains locked. The kingdom of heaven here is compared to a great fortress that has gates. And those gates are locked. So that individuals are forbidden to go in, others are locked in and kept in. Now these gates are opened and shut with figurative keys. Jesus Christ is the key. He's the one alone who's able to open the door into the kingdom of heaven. He's the only one that's able to close and bar individuals from going into the kingdom of heaven. Entrance into the kingdom is only through election. It's through the wonder of God's grace by which God chooses to himself a people and in Christ 
and on the basis of his sacrifice, makes atonement. The citizens of the kingdom of heaven are those who are united to Christ by a true and living faith, and they live out of him. Those who are in Christ are received into the kingdom. They're given a place. Those who are not must be barred from the kingdom. They have no place in the kingdom of heaven. And so this kingdom here is a heavenly kingdom. It's going to be realized in all of its perfection at the end of time in the new heaven and the new earth. But now for a time, that kingdom is represented here on earth. And that kingdom then is seen on earth in the church institute. God has appointed within the church institute men as elders, pastors, to care for the citizens of the kingdom of heaven as long as they're in the midst of the world. And that's the idea here with regard to the congregation and the place that these men are put in the congregation. The church is to care for their spiritual needs so that the citizens of God's kingdom can walk faithfully and godly in the midst of this world. That's the business of Christ's church. And it's the business alone of Christ's church. Christ's church is not to get involved in matters that are not having to do with that ecclesiastical matter. They're involved in the preparation of the citizens of the kingdom for their life in the kingdom of heaven to all eternity. And so this demonstrates the importance of the church, the importance of the work of the church, the importance of the office bearers. Those who despise the church despise Christ and they despise Christ's kingdom. The door of the church on earth is the door of the kingdom. And that's the comparison that Jesus himself established as he gave to his disciples those keys and commanded them to execute them on earth, insisting that what was barred on earth would also be barred then in heaven. Ultimately, it's only Christ that can turn that key. He's the only one that can allow entrance. He's the only one, ultimately, that is able to forbid. There's no dispute over that question. But Christ now entrusts those keys to the church. And he calls the elders now to turn them on his behalf. The elders are called to do so not on the basis of their own judgment. And that was what's happening in Israel. The judges, those who were appointed by God within the congregation, were executing judgment on the basis of their own whims. They were opening the door to individuals they ought not have been opening it to. They were closing it to individuals they shouldn't have closed it to. They were conducting themselves on the basis of their own personal judgments. And God had to admonish them. They were mere men. They were puffing themselves up above God. And mere men, they're going to die. They're going to fall and they're going to fail. But Jehovah, he's the judge. And he's the one who will oversee the work that he has performed. And so as such, the elders take up that responsibility. Now there's another kingdom that's warring and waging war against the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom of the devil. And as the kingdom of the devil wages war against Christ and his kingdom, he seeks to destroy that kingdom. He tries to infiltrate it with his own spies, 
his own unbelieving individuals who then get into the kingdom and then sow their seeds of trouble and schism and unrest within the church of Jesus Christ. He tries to break in through false teaching and false doctrine, through godless living. Constantly, the devil is trying to infilter the kingdom of Christ in order to bring about its demise. He knows that persecution is not so effective. He tried that in the past, and he saw the church solidified and the church growing. But he realizes with Balaam of old, remember the wicked Balaam, when he couldn't curse Israel, what did he do? He encouraged the godless young men to marry women from Israel, to draw them away in that way, or to join Israel and in that way to bring about the demise of Israel. And we read that he was very effective. And he's condemned then in the book of Revelation for his ability to sow the seeds of distrust and unrest subtly within the church of Jesus Christ. The keys then are of highest importance. These are the means by which those individuals and the devil are to be put out and the means by which God's people and God's children are to be kept in. But also we understand through birth, elect believers bring into this world children who are not part of Christ's kingdom. And it may be in time. They reveal themselves as such. They do not love Christ. They do not desire to maintain his will in their lives. And as a result then, not all who are of Israel truly are Israel. And so they also need to be dealt with in a manner that is in accordance with God and his word. The truth of election and reprobation cutting through families, difficult as that is, requiring then discipline. Now, the more clearly the church bears the marks of the church, of the, church the harder the devil works to try to bring about the destruction of that congregation. Seeking to maintain faithfulness in the preaching, seeking to maintain faithfulness in living, the devil hates and the devil will seek to destroy such who seek to maintain it. And so constantly the elders, the office bearers need to be on guard and they need to be on guard with regard to these attempts of the devil to bring about the destruction of the church institute. Now this is hard. This is difficult. Our nature is to take everyone as members, to be conscious of size, of numbers alone, and therefore to want as many people as we can to be members of our congregation. We want the congregation to grow. Some argue there's a place for everyone in the church, no matter how they're living, no matter what they believe. And they argue then that we need to see to it that we embrace and receive those individuals as members of Christ's church so that those walking in the grossest of sins are encouraged to be members. Now it's true. We encourage our neighbors. We encourage our friends. We encourage those who are walking in the grossest of sins to come to church. There is no more higher place that we would desire them. We want them to be under the preaching of the gospel and we desire that they hear God's word proclaimed. How else will they ever hear the good news of salvation? How will they ever repent and turn from the sins in which they're walking? They need to come to church. But the church must jealously guard the membership of the church. They may not become members unless it is evident that they are repentant, that they have put off that old 
man and are laboring with regard to the putting on of the new and that there's evidence there of a godly spiritual work that's taking place in their lives. At the same time, the saints need to be locked in. Those who are walking in godly manner, the children, the young people, the adults of the church, they need to be kept in. The temptation is to look at the world with all its glitter and all of its allure, and they want to follow after that way that seems so attractive. They need to be warned, and the church uses the keys to pull them back, to encourage them that this is the place of joy and happiness. The way of the devil and the way of the world is not that which they ought to pursue. And so they're warned, and the keys are that warning. Now, beloved, you and I need the church. You and I need the oversight of God through his office bears. We are so sinful, we are so rebellious, that of ourselves, we would cast ourselves headlong into destruction. We need the preaching to warn us. We need the preaching of the whole counsel of God to step on our toes, to drive us to repentance. We need elders who are willing to come and warn us and admonish us when we're not walking in a manner that is godly. And especially in these evil days, and as the days get closer to the end, materialism, greed, covetousness will all the more abound. And we need the church. We need Christ to oversee us, to keep us, and to preserve us in the enjoyment of that salvation that he bought for us. It's so easy for us to forget all about the kingdom of heaven and to begin living as though we're children of this world and living for the things that are here below. It's so easy for us to eat and drink and to partake of all the pleasures and all of the things of this world that the devil subtly drags us right into the way of his kingdom, which leads to hell and destruction. Unless we be proud, the scriptures warn us, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. I can't stand of myself. I'm inclined to all kinds of extremes. I need Christ and his church. The question that this psalm requires of us to ask is this, how are the elders doing their work? Are they locking and unlocking in a partial manner? Or are they doing so impartially? Are they motivated by their own desires, their own ambitions? Or are they doing so on the basis of God and the word of God? How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Positively, defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. There's a lot of judging that takes place of office bears, judging in homes, judging on the internet, judging throughout the denomination. But we realize, ultimately, they stand before God, and that's far greater than any other judge they'll ever face. And as they stand before Jehovah God, they need to give answer to God. Answer with regard to how is it that you are standing in the congregation as God's servants. It's not the duty of the consistory to be making up new rules, new regulations. We must do that to a degree, obviously. But ultimately, it's defending God's word and the teaching of God's word and enforcing the rules that Jehovah God himself 
employs as to how the kingdom is to be opened and how the kingdom is to be shut. Are the elders locking the doors? Are they warning and keeping the saints in? Are they shutting the door and putting out those who ought be put out? But then there's the question that we need to ask ourselves. When we're being labored with, perhaps, or when the elders are warning, or when we hear that warning through the Word of God and through the preaching, what is our response? Sadly, too often, we're trying to get out. We're trying to pound the door down. And we're so intent on getting out that then we backbite and we slander the office bearers and we accuse them of frustrating our purpose. And then we finally get out and then we blame them for putting us out. As if they were the ones that were guilty when they were the ones trying to keep us within. And the same thing can occur with regard to the preaching. When the preaching focuses on my sin and exposes my sin and my guilt and my shame, what do I do? Do I plug my ears? I don't want to hear about that. Or does it convict me? And do I repent and turn? There are times I don't want to hear. So then I want to escape. I want to go somewhere where I don't have to listen about sin. I don't hear about my failures, about my weaknesses. We want to live in the world. We want to get out. And when the preaching is setting before us warnings, when the preaching is setting before us the reality of hell and the destruction that is to those who walk unrepentantly, who refuse to submit to God and to His will, how do we react? How do we respond? Beloved, through all of this, Christ is at work. These are His keys. And He's the one performing a wonder work. He's keeping His saints in. He's putting out those who are living for the things of this earth, who are pursuing their own selfish flesh. And he's the one who will keep and preserve his own and will give them the strength to walk humbly before his face. He works in us a knowledge of our sin. He helps us to see more consistently the walk that we are called to before God. He exposes areas of our life where we're not walking in accordance with his will, where we're not submitting to his lordship. And we're thankful for that. It hurts. It grieves us. But this is the work of Christ. And as Christ is at work through his elders, his servants, through the preaching, Christ is the one who's performing a perfect work here on earth. The elders would never dare take up this labor on their own if it were not for the fact that Christ is the one who's working in and through them. And as they bring the word, and as they bring admonition, they do so trusting this is Christ's work. And Christ is the one who will accomplish his good pleasure through our weak and sinful means. Now there's a sense in which all the people of God participate in these keys, and that comes out also in the Lord's Day. Believers are encouraged to admonish one another. If heresy is preached from the pulpit, and nothing is done, then all of us are accountable. It will be dreadful for that minister who has to stand before Christ's judgment to give an account of his actions toward the church and toward Christ. But it will be dreadful also for those who allowed it to occur. Not just office bearers, but also 
all of us as members of Christ's church, we have the obligation to see to it that the truth is being maintained. If members of the church are living in sin, and we know it, we are obligated to go to them. Our calling is not to call the minister, not call an elder. Our calling is to deal with the individuals in love. Go with them, talk with them, encourage them in the Lord. Admonish them where necessary. So that discipline starts in the pew. It starts with our relationship with one another, our loved one for another, and our willingness, though it be hard, to talk with each other about these difficult things. We want God's children to stay and to remain within His church. And where are those who are walking in sin, walking in rebellion? We want them to admonish. And so it starts with my own life. It starts with my own confession of sin. It starts with my own walk. But then it extends to my life within the body and my interaction with the fellow members of Christ's church. Am I walking in love toward God and my neighbor? And if I'm convinced that the pastor or the elders are not treating me in love on the basis of God's word, there are ways in which that needs to be dealt with. And we have the process of protest, the process of appeal, where we can make our matter known. God gives us the means by which the people of God hold the office bearers and the members accountable before God. We stand in the congregation before God. As members of a denomination, we also have mutual accountability. The church visitors come every year to our council. They open up all the consistory, all the deacon minutes. They read through them all. They ask questions about the labors that are taking place within the churches. And as member churches of a denomination, we welcome that mutual supervision. That's a way in which also the church is kept faithful to her God. But specifically now, we look at the preaching and we look at discipline. The preaching is the official proclamation of Christ through his ordained servants. Christ preaches through men whom he has ordained as ministers and elders. The preaching must include the whole counsel of God regarding election, reprobation, the doctrine of Christ, of the Trinity, all of the aspects of the doctrine that's taught in God's word. Regeneration, calling, faith, justification, sanctification, glorification. All of the aspects of Christian life must be addressed through the preaching of the gospel. Now it's easy and somewhat natural for a minister to overlook some things. And this is where again the congregation, the elders assist him. Is he preaching the whole counsel of God? And especially this becomes evident when a minister is not living faithfully in a certain area. If a minister is not living faithfully in a certain area, he's not probably going to preach about that. He's probably not going to address that matter within the congregation and the preaching. So that it's so important that ministers be an example to the congregation. So that they can preach on all of the various aspects of Christian life. And though they're sinners, though they're weak, though the preaching convicts them as well, they need yet to bring those admonitions to bear on Christ's church. And again, the elders, the members of the congregation, bring oversights where they sense them to the attention of the pastor. Is he addressing this sin? I've not heard this sin addressed for months, maybe years. 
Is he providing balance in his preaching so that the whole counsel of God is addressing all of the various aspects of the Christian walk in life? Now, there are two things especially that are noted here about the preaching. And these two elements are set forth as a reminder to every minister. First of all, when according to the command of Christ, it is declared and publicly testified to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them for the sake of Christ's merits. The preaching is the proclamation of the gospel. This is the good news from Jesus Christ himself. You believe in me, your sins are forgiven. All the sins that you've committed, forgiven through my shed blood and my perfect work on your behalf. The gospel is proclaimed so that believers are told, when you lay hold on the promise of the gospel by faith, you need to believe this. You need to trust that your sins are forgiven you. And you cling to Jesus Christ alone because forgiveness is found only in him and his perfect work. There is salvation in none other. And so every preacher has to preach Christ and the wonder of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. And has to tell God's people, when you believe on Jesus Christ and you believe on him as your Savior, your sins are forgiven. Be assured of that. Though you're a sinner, though you continue to wrestle with your sins, though your conscience accuses you, you have Christ and you cling to Jesus Christ as that one who is your Savior. Now, what does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? You embrace the truth of his word. You know yourself to be a sinner who deserves the wrath of God. You lay hold on Christ and you confess his atoning blood as that which was spilled on your behalf. Jesus put it in these terms in Matthew 16, 24. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I know my misery. I know the marvelous character of my deliverance. And now in thankfulness, I desire to live unto him. I want to serve him. Every sermon must set forth the promise of the gospel. And it must do so because Christ is the theme that runs through the whole of the Scripture. Every text brings out Christ in one way or another. And this is the great need of God's people. We battle hard against sin throughout the week. We need to hear the wonder of salvation in Jesus Christ. The door to the kingdom is shut to everyone who continues unrepentantly in sin. But the people of God need to hear that door is open through Jesus Christ. And those who confess their sins, those who believe the promise of the gospel, are forgiven. And you have a place within the kingdom. You don't feel like you deserve it, and you don't. But Jesus Christ has opened the door. He's taken you and drawn you by his irresistible grace into his presence. And he gives you to know the wonder of your salvation. Now, this isn't the only truth that we need to hear, but this is the truth that gives us comfort and that gives us peace. If my sins are forgiven me, all is well. My life in the midst of this world may be falling apart. I may be experiencing difficulties after difficulties. My health may be terrible, and I may be facing death. But if my sins are forgiven... All is well. 
In the midst of the heaviness and the sorrow of life, there's a joy unspeakable. If my sins are not forgiven, what good do all the possessions of the world offer? Think again of Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 26. You may gain the whole world, but what's it going to profit you if you lose your soul? You have wealth, you have fame, you have glory, you have honor, but you perish in everlasting damnation in hell. That first of all. But secondly, when it is declared and testified to all unbelievers and such as do not sincerely repent, that they stand exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation so long as they are unconverted, according to which testimony of the gospel, God will judge them both in this and in the life to come. Now that's an important reminder, especially to ministers. I need to be reminded of this purpose, too, of the preaching. All who live in sin, who refuse to repent, need to hear. God is a righteous God. And God is a God who will come in judgment. And God is not mocked. And He will punish with everlasting punishment those who refuse to repent, who refuse to cling to Christ. I cannot turn away the fierce wrath of God, and neither can you. Jesus alone is able to do so for us. The elders must see to it that the preaching is proclaimed and the gospel is proclaimed and the promise is proclaimed as a particular promise. The promise of the gospel is not for every man, woman, and child that comes into the presence of Christ through the preaching. It's for those who believe. Those who believe are those who take up the cross and follow Christ, are willing to submit to him and to live unto him. Those who refuse to follow Christ, face judgment. Now that can be difficult for a minister to preach. It's not what people need and want, it's not what people want to hear. People want the minister to make them feel good. We want to have the minister pat us on the back. We don't want to hear about sin. We don't want to hear about judgment. We don't want to hear about hell. The preaching must warn of the sins that threaten life within the kingdom. The devil is trying to get you out of the kingdom. He's trying to do so by your own sinful, proud, abusive relationship toward your wife. He's trying to do so by your conduct, your wicked lording conduct over your husband, perhaps. He's tempting you with the sins of youth. He's tempting you with television, with movies, with dancing, with all of the different drugs and alcohol, all of the things of this world. He's tempting you. He's saying... Come on, life in the kingdom of God? That's not what you want. That's no fun. Come live with me. Pursue the ways of sin, the ways of temptation, the ways of the life of a sinner, one who loves the things of this world. Embrace materialism, pleasure. And so the preaching needs to warn, no, if you pursue those things without repentance, there will be judgment. And the preaching must warn that Jehovah God will judge. Those who run and walk after the ways of the things of this life will perish. Now through it all, we need to remember this. Christ is the one who's preaching to me. He alone is the one able to bring me to my knees. He's the only one that's able to convict me and impress upon my heart and my soul the horror of my sin. 
He's the only one that's able to make me see the tragic attempts that I'm trying to make to escape out of his kingdom, to try to live as a citizen of this world instead. He knows the circumstances of your life. He's the only one who, by his Spirit, can apply the word so precisely that it convicts. Christ will use the preaching of the word to convict, to humble his children so that they stay in the kingdom. He will use it to bring them to repentance so that the door is locked and they're kept in and they're brought to confess their sins and to know their need for a Savior. He also uses that preaching to harden others. Their hearts are hardened. They don't want to hear about sin. They complain about the preaching, being too doctrinal, too focused perhaps on sin. But at bottom, they hate God. They hate Christ. And they're driven out then. Christ opens the door. Christ drives them out. They may not stay. They show themselves worthy members of the kingdom of the devil, not the kingdom of heaven. Now, there must be progress for members. We need to be growing. We need to be increasing in godliness and in holiness. Otherwise, we too are going to be more and more hardened. It ought not be possible for members to sit under the preaching of the gospel year after year with no fruit. There must be fruit, and that fruit must be evident. And how thankful we need to be for Christ. Jesus Christ, who loves us so much that he sends his word to admonish and to comfort and to encourage us week after week. After a week in the midst of this world, you know and I know, I need Christ. I need the assurance of the victory that is mine in him. I need to know that I'm forgiven, that there's peace with God through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so we look forward to, we long for, the preaching of the gospel in order that we hear our Lord and Savior comfort and encourage us as we walk down life's pathway. But included also, there is Christian discipline. And the Catechism says, who will not, after having been often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life. Now notice the place of the individual members here of the church again. The admonitions begin with members of the church going to the brother to the sister who's walking in sin. After going to the brother or the sister, finding no evidence of repentance, then the matter is brought to the church, to the elders, the consistory. The elders then proceed to admonish the individuals. And they, if necessary, are barred from the sacraments, eventually excommunicated if they persist in unbelief. But that can only take place, again, with a safeguard of having classes speak to the matter. No names are mentioned, but the matter is brought to classes so that there's a safeguard again that the elders not unjustly judge within their congregations, but that we have that oversight that's necessary and important. Now, the fact of Christian discipline sets forth not only the love of God for us, but reveals again how sinful and how corrupt we are. There are times in our lives when we go to church We pray, we go through all the outward motions, but our hearts are far from God. We're caught up in a sin, maybe. And that sin starts as a private sin, but we keep coming to church. But we separate that part of our life from the rest of our life. The longer we continue in that sin without repenting, the more that sin bothers. And that sin, at times, maybe even becomes public. Perhaps... Finally, we're walking in a gross public sin 
that we've become hardened to. It may be then that someone from the church comes to you and says, brother, sister, is it true that you are living in this way? Are you walking in this manner? And you don't receive them. You're like, no. Mind your own business. You dismiss them. You refuse to meet with them. You don't want anything to do with listening to his concerns. Finally, the elders come knocking on your door and they want to talk with you. You dismiss them. Won't respond to their calls. Won't respond to their texts. Minimize their concerns. They come then with charges of sin against you. You listen to them. You find out they really mean what they're saying. They're serious. And Christ uses then the work of the elders to shake you out of your lethargy and to bring you to confess that sin before God. So stubborn, so hard-hearted we are at times that this is the extent to which God has to go. And sometimes it's even necessary that the elders need to go to that final remedy, excommunication, in order that that impresses upon us finally the seriousness of our sin. Now that was true of the saints in the Old Testament as well. So stubborn, so hard-hearted, they refused to see their sin. Think of men after God's own heart like David. A whole year living unrepentantly with regard to the sins of murder and adultery. And finally, it took Nathan the prophet coming to David and exposing his sin and bringing him to repentance. God sent prophets. He sent angels. He sent other means to his saints out of love for them. God will not allow his children to continue unrepentantly in sin. God will bring them to repentance in order that they might know the joy of forgiveness and a place in his kingdom. But David needed Nathan the prophet. Isaiah, Israel needed Hosea. Ezekiel, Nehemiah were necessary for Israel to expose their sin. And today, so it is for us. God gives us elders called by Christ to stand in the congregation and to judge on his behalf. And they're set in the congregation as gods. Christ is the one speaking and working through them. He's the one admonishing you to turn from sin when they meet with you. And his children see the need for Christ and they seek the grace to walk in obedience. Now as God puts these office bearers within the congregation, we read, for instance, in Ezekiel 33, verses 7 and following, the calling that's given them. These men are set as watchmen over the walls of Zion. When they hear of a sin or they know of a sin, they need to bring that matter to the attention of the one walking in sin. If they fail, the blood is on their head. When they warn, then the matter is on the head of the one who is sinner. These men need to be faithful. If they're not being faithful, then they're individuals walking in sin thinking that they can continue to do so. But these men are still men. They must not become proud in their office. And that's an admonition that Psalm 82 addresses too. They may not bring their own judgment. They may not cover up and ignore sin. They may not be men pleasers. They may not show respect of persons. They're going to die like men. And they will give an account of the manner in which they conducted themselves within the church of Jesus Christ. How did they serve Christ? And how did they feed his flock? God is the God of judgment. And the text points out that judgment of Jehovah God. So that we need not fear mere men, but we fear Jehovah. 
and we fear the judgment of his word. And when the word is brought, we realize we stand before the living God. And how will we respond to God? Now, Christ is hardening the wicked. He's leaving them without excuse. They were warned. They refused to submit. Their blood is on their own heads. When it comes right down to it, there really is only one kind of person that is put out of the church through discipline. And that's the person that refuses to say, I'm sorry. They will not repent. There's no one commandment that's so great that sin against that one commandment puts someone outside the kingdom. It's failure to repent. Because repentance is a fruit of the work of Christ in the life of God's children. And therefore, those who are Christ's will say sorry, and they will repent of their sin. Now, beloved, we see the love of God expressed through the keys of the kingdom. God loves His children with such a great love that He knows your and my need. He puts us in the church where we can be preserved and kept as long as we are here on earth. And he cares for our souls in the context of the church. Where is Christ found on earth? Christ is found in the church. He's spiritually present with the preaching of the gospel and the sacraments and discipline. And so we flee to Christ. We cling to Christ. And we know the love that Jesus Christ has for us. We receive the preaching. We support the work of the minister in our prayers. We encourage him to preach the whole counsel of God. We support and we pray for the elders and their difficult work. A work that's impossible for them to take up of themselves. And they're reminded of this every consistory meeting. It's a work no man is qualified for. And yet we need to do it as before the face of God. And so we take it up. A work that threatens to break the hearts of men who love Christ and love his saints. But they press on knowing our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Not being weary in well-doing, but knowing that this is God's work. God stands in the congregation. And God will see to it that he will use weakest means to fulfill his perfect will. And if I find myself under discipline, don't think that I can escape Christ by merely requesting my papers. I can't. I won't escape Christ. Now your membership belongs to you. And if you request them, the consistory needs to grant it. But will we separate ourselves from Christ at a time when we so desperately need him? We need his love. We need his mercy. We need his faithfulness. We can't trust our own judgments. We remember the vows that we've made. And we stay. We stay. And we rejoice when individuals return, when they worship, when they put themselves under Christ and his word. And we pray about our situation. We pray that Christ expose our sin. We repent from those sins and we look to him as the one to whom we owe our all. He laid his life down in my place. He loved me when I was unlovable. He loved me while I was yet an enemy. And now he will preserve and he will keep me to all eternity. Beloved, thank God for his church. And view the church, especially the office bearers, as loving fathers called by God to keep you locked in the kingdom of heaven, safe from all the evils that the devil is bringing your way. 
And thank God for the preaching that humbles you, that keeps you on the road to the cross. And maintain that vow that you made when you confessed your faith. Submit to the government of the church for the salvation of your soul. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, what wonders thou dost perform on our behalf. The love with which thou hast loved us from all eternity and now in time and by which thou wilt preserve thine own in order to bring them into the fullness of the joy that awaits. Lord, strengthen the office bearers whom thou hast placed in this congregation. Give unto them faithfulness. May they bring judgments that are in accordance with thy will. And we pray that thou wilt work in us as members, soft hearts, a willingness to know and to confess our sins. May we esteem those men as servants of Christ. And may we press on, believing that thou art the one who in thy faithfulness will preserve to thyself a church on earth until our Lord returns. This we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.